This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right. Hello and welcome to a Wednesday afternoon edition of the Chase Thomas podcast. I am still the aforementioned Chase Thomas and I'm joined by a first timer, co-worker, if you will, through the Blue Wire pod network. It's Justin Russo of Clip and Roll. Justin, good afternoon, sir. How are you? I'm doing as well as well as I'm not, wow, I completely butchered what I was going to say. I'm doing as well as one can do, I guess, in the middle of a Wednesday afternoon in a pandemic. But, you know, it is what it is and churning along throughout the last year or so. Well, what's good is that the Clippers are easy. They're easy to predict. We know how it's all going to go for them this playoff run. We know where Kawhi will be. We know where Paul George will be. We'll understand that point guard spot. We'll understand how Ibaka will be coming back. We'll understand all of this right now and that it's all, we don't even really have to play these games. We can just simulate to the, the NBA finals where the Clippers and Nets will meet, correct? Oh yeah, totally. Yeah. That's just how this works for the Clippers over the last 50 years is everything just completely goes their way. I am so nervous that I have the Clippers and Nets in the finals and I've, had that for for a long period of time um i'm more you know it's weird though i don't know if you're like this and we can start here because tonight's gonna be fun and i i don't really want to go too much into lakers warriors because this will be up late, later tonight and i don't know they, they, it will just be outdated but um i just it's weird to me that i'm more comfortable in picking the clippers to come out of the west than i am the nets coming out of these are you is that where you're at do you have like a prediction in mind at the moment so I really don't. I think this is one of the weirdest postseasons we've ever entered in terms mm. of like the league as a whole, because I don't look at any one team and just go, that's the team. Like last year, I'm pretty sure everyone looked at the Lakers like that's the team. They had the track record all regular season. They look great. You know, even the seeding games didn't really matter to them. So it was whatever. But you look at this season, it's like Utah was great for a very long time. They kind of sputtered at the end because injuries hit them and whatnot. Phoenix was really good, but, you know, they had their lulls throughout the season. Like, there wasn't one team that I really looked at and was like, you know, on their best night, or not even on their best night, I like their B-plus nights, they're winning, like, the majority of their games, like, at least in the postseason. And I think that's what makes this year really tough to predict. I think the Nets might be the team. I think they might be that team, but I'm not sure. Um, I felt that way like two months ago, but the last couple months I have, everything just looks so wonky now. It does. And I don't, 
I'm not going to just be like one of those people that just like, hey, if I'm, I'm wrong, I'm just like, well, here's here's why I'm not uh, I'm not grounded to these two things. It's just it's really hard for me to see if um, things play out like they do in my head <laughs> that they, they don't play out that way. Isn't that how predictions work? But I also don't want to take away from my enjoyment. And I think that's something I wonder about when I see basketball Twitter react to certain things that like. I think people who like for tonight, for for instance, like the the Steph Curry versus LeBron stuff of like the people that are going to look at this game is like looking for a reason to indict one or the other uh, based on the performance and based how it goes. And I'm just like, I, I'd rather just enjoy both sides. And I don't want to make a prediction on that because I would I don't want to end up like finding myself pulling or being annoyed at LeBron winning or being annoyed that Steph lost or you know what I mean? Yeah, you you want to enjoy the journey more than more or less more than the result. And I mm-hmm. think that's what a lot of people need to do because I think we get so caught up in the narratives and, you know, pulling for one side against another. I think you just need to enjoy the sport for what it is. Like there's been plenty of times this year I've been at the arena and yes, I cover the Clippers, but I'll see a player on the other team do something I'm like that's it's honestly like it takes your breath away. Like it just it's fine to to actually enjoy things, I think, is the grand takeaway from life and sports in general. I agree. I agree. Um, Because these games happened last night, Justin, I want to touch on the Wiz Celtics and the Pacers Hornets. Um, What did you what did you feel stronger about coming out of it? Did you come out with any new perspectives on any of the four? What what are you thinking uh, after the Pacers blow up the Hornets and the Celtics uh, take down the Wiz behind uh, Tatum's 50? My biggest takeaway is that Jason Tatum uh, is really good at basketball, and he's had an interesting journey this season. Like my biggest takeaway really was the journey that Jason Tatum has been on this year. You know, he was he was great in the beginning of the year. Gets COVID, he's out for a while. He talks about how COVID impacted his breathing, and now he has to use an inhaler before games. And then he has these games three times this year, scoring fifty points. And I think it really starts to hit home about what kind of offensive and even two-way talent this guy is at such a young age. So that was my biggest takeaway is on one of the biggest stages, the the biggest stage for his team this year. I mean, you know, if they win, they get the seventh seed. If not, then they're playing for their season two days later. He has one of the best games in the NBA, 50 points, eight rebounds, four assists. He looks incredible. And it's a young guy who's been through a lot this season on a team that's been through a lot this season. And it was honestly incredible to see the output that he had and the way he carried them. Um, Especially, you know, down the stretch of that game, he scores 32 in the second half. And like, it's just, it's just mind boggling to see a guy that young dealing what he's dealt with to show up the way that he did. Yeah, I mean it was it was great, and I'm I'm glad we're getting Tatum versus Durant um, in that seven spot. I think that's the most interesting result we could have gotten there. Um, in terms of Pacers Hornets, uh, are you at all worried? Like, was it because I just don't think that goes that way? If Ball's healthy, if Hayward's there, like what they were without Hayward was just sad. Um, I don't know. I, I it's it's easy to overreact to Borrego's job performance down the stretch here as they fell to that 10th spot. Um, and based on where they were just a few months prior, are you at all concerned about the direction of the Hornets and the way they fell apart down the stretch here? Are you concerned about Borrego's job security? Are you just kind of concerned about these young guys in this nucleus going forward at all? Not really. I Mm. think that's the thing is they're young 
and they went through scoring uh, droughts throughout the season, all season. And it happens that most teams go through these like basically every game. Every team will have a stretch of like three or four minutes where they just don't score because that's basketball. It's really hard to score sometimes. But for the Hornets down the stretch, it really killed them. I know it killed them explicitly in, in the Clippers game. It killed them the next couple games in terms of playoff seeding. And obviously, you know, uh, their defense wasn't that great in this game. Their offense kind of let them down at times in that in the same game. But I'm not really worried for Borrego. I'm not really worried for the team because of how many guys were out. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I'd, I'm just kind of wondering. I, I guess I, I don't think anything's going to happen big time, but a lot of pressure, I think, going into next year and building off what they have. And um, they have some questions to figure out with Bridges and this group and how they all fit together and Monk. And I don't know. I'm fascinated to see what the Hornets Hornets do this offseason. Mm-hmm. It was really interesting with Indiana, though, because, yeah. like, you know, obviously Charlotte's without Hayward. Lamelo, you know, still dealing with the hand injury, but played. But then you look at Indiana; it's like they're without Jeremy Lamb, they're without Karis Levert, they're without Miles Turner, they're without T.J. Warren, and they put up 144 points. Like it's honestly incredible. Um, and that's with the turmoil from the coaching staff in Indiana, as we've read about for the last couple weeks. So for them to show up the way that they did in a game that if they lost, their season was over. They could have very easily just decided to end the season mm-hmm. and just be done. And they didn't, they, they fought, they dominated that game from start to finish. And Sabonis to me, I've raved about him all year. It's one of my favorite things to do is watch the Pacers play. I've watched a lot of Pacer games this year. Cause I find them really interesting. Um, Sabonis, Nate Duncan. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's actually, yeah. Look, Sabonis to me is one of the most talented offensive big men in the league. And I think it's okay to admit how like uniquely talented he is Mm -hmm. as an offensive fulcrum, like the things that he can do. I'm not saying he's Nikola Jokic. Obviously he's not the shooter and he's not the pure, uh, shot maker inside 15 feet that Jokic can be in around the rim. But there are some similar skills with the passing, the rebounding, his ability to outlet, you know, like he's able to, you can see where his progression would lie over the next couple years on a team that gives him greater leeway to run the offense. And I think we saw that this year. I'm interested to see how the fourth Washington, Indiana game goes this year. So, I mean, there is some intrigue as far as Thursday's game goes in that regard. Yeah. I love watching some bonus. I like diversity and I, I don't know if you saw that, uh, shot chart from, uh goldsbury today did you see that no i did not okay well i think you can guess how it looked for the 2021 2022 nba season or 2020 2021 season rather uh yeah layups and threes (laughs) yes that's that's it and then a little bit of uh some shots at the the free throw line so it looks like the the graphics flicking you off it's it's a funny image i i encourage everyone to check it out i'm I'm pretty sure every single one of those shots at the free throw line was chris paul (laughs) (laughs) or trey young Trey Young loves or, those floaters at Young. the free throw line. He that's that's all Trey really does. He doesn't really go to the corner. It's just top of the arc uh, threes and then the rim and the the free throw floaters or drawing fouls from that uh, same area, which is going to go great um, in this next series. Trey and I'm, out. Yeah. I'm very excited for that series. It's going seven. Did you see today that uh, Begley was reporting out that Tibbs is considering putting Nilakina back in the rota- rotation to to guard Trey? That's actually interesting because didn't the Knicks win all three games? I believe so. Yes. 
So that, that's actually interesting that he's going to do that now. Look, as we've come to find out, regular season doesn't really mean much for the postseason. But I, I, I really like that matchup. Um, I don't mean to get off track, but I really like that matchup because it's the slow, methodical, defensive, helter-skelter style of the Knicks against this Hawks team that is going to run spread pick and rolls 100 times a game with Young and Capella. And they're going to they're going to maximize the spacing and all these things. And I'm very interested to see the mismatches each team tries to generate on the offensive end of the floor, whether that's Randall somehow trying to get switched onto young or whether that's young trying to get Randall switched onto him. Um, that's going to be a series. I don't know how long it goes. I think it could go seven. Um, I pretty much think a lot of these series could go seven eventually, but that series in particular is probably the ultimate chess match to me from a stylistic standpoint. Interesting. Yeah. I think your series and my series, uh, with the Hawks and the Clippers are are in good shape to go six or seven. I I, I don't know how you're going to handle. How is the Clipper fan base going to handle a potential seven game not, series in the Mavs? Is, is it like well, well, it's Luca. Not well. Okay, there's no way around it. Buddy, this is a fan base <laughs> that is tortured. They go da- they they're down in a game and they freak out. So it is what it is. You just learn to live Kleber with it right point. now because he was marking uh, Kawhi last year. Is he going to be able to to cover Kawhi? Do we know Maxi? Yeah. Uh, he should be able to see, this is why I'm actually intrigued in the Dallas, uh, Clipper series more this year than last year, hmm. because Maxi, if you look at the numbers, Kawhi wasn't that bothered by Maxi. He, I think Kawhi shot like 50% when Kleba was guarding him in the, in last year's series, which I mean, that's an amazing number, but like when you actually watch the tape of it, I don't think there's anything Maxi could have done differently. Like he was on him every time. It just didn't matter. Hmm. But the difference this year is now Dallas has more wings to throw at Kawhi and PG in. All right, so Dorian Finney-Smith is back, but but and they also have Ter- uh, Tim Hardaway Jr. still there, but they now have Josh Richardson, and that's the intriguing thing for me is does Dallas now throw Richardson at Kawhi a little bit more to allow Maxi to then not have to do it all the time? Hmm. What do you think they end up doing? So I think what they're going to start is because I think their ideal or not their ideal, their starting lineup has Powell and Porzingis in it, I believe. So you're at like you're I don't know which one of those like you're not going to sit Porzingis, obviously, but I wonder if they start Maxi instead of Dwight Powell. Because you don't want to really pull Dwight Powell away from the rim as a rim protector because he's actually a solid rim protector. And I, I really like Dwight Powell. Um, I rave about him like all the time. I raved about him last year and then he got hurt against the Clippers in the in like January, I believe. Um, but the real intriguing part is I think they're going to have to start Josh Richardson mm-hmm. onto him. And if that's not going well, then it has to be Maxi, And then you're going to have to – like the, the real key to the series – is who's going to guard Paul George? Because mm-hmm. if Josh Richardson can't guard Kawhi, he has to guard Paul George. But then if Maxi isn't doing the job numbers-wise that you need him to do, what do you then do? Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, 
only on Showtime. For the ones who know that a little late is always too late, and that the clock doesn't stop just because you're missing a part, Granger offers supplies and solutions for every industry, and our Keep Stock Inventory Management solutions help ensure you have the right stuff in the right place at exactly the right time. Visit Granger.com slash Keepstock to learn more. Granger for the ones who get it done. I I don't know. I don't think they're that deep. I don't think they you're not throwing Dorian Finney Smith on him. You're not throwing Hardaway. You're not throwing uh Melly on him. Like I don't really know what their other options are. But that's why I find the series so intriguing, because yeah. if Dallas gets enough out of Maxi and Richardson it becomes almost like now the Clippers have to find what works. And that's when it gets a little bit tough. Not to say the Clippers can't find it, but the issue the Clippers have had at times is when Kawhi is effectively taken out of the game, not even just with one-on-one defenses, with teams blitzing him on pick and rolls. And he's a very willing passer. He's been a very good playmaker this year out of pick and rolls. Uh, One of the best in the NBA, I believe actually. But if you take Kawhi out of the equation and you take PG out of the equation, well, now you're asking all the role guys to continue doing what they've done all season, which is fine. But at some point, does that stop? And that's the million dollar question for the team. What do you think is going to be the best five man lineup that the Clippers tried out this postseason? What do you, if you had to guess at when it's all said and done, um, we can look past the map series if they get through it. Um, what do you think is the best five man unit plus minus wise? Who has the best net rating of any group of five in this playoff situation? So I think it's going to be the starting lineup just because they have the most continuity together of any lineup over the last two years. So that's Beverly, George, Leonard, Morris, and Zubot. So that's, Mm -hmm. that's the lineup that they're going to start with in game one. Um, it's a very, it's a very, very, very good lineup. I'm not trying to undersell. This lineup is very good. I believe that they're like plus 20 at rating, but it's only like 50-something minutes because they've only played like eight games because uh, Pat Beverly missed some time to both a knee and a, a hand issue this year. But I think the lineup that will surprise people is the bench lineup, which I believe the bench lineup this year is, is more uh, – is just better equipped, I should say, to handle the other bench lineups from like Dallas, like last year in the Dallas series, the Clippers struggled with bench lineups. Um, they, they just couldn't contain Seth Curry. They couldn't contain, um, Oh my God, I forgot a uh, Trey Burke. That that's the guy I couldn't think of. They struggled with the, with the Burke and Curry minutes last postseason in that series. But this year they're going to trot out Rondo, Reggie Jackson, Nick Batum, Sergi Baca. And in the fifth spot is is either going to be Kawhi or PG with the other four. That's a lot better structurally than last year's team was, which was last year's team was Lou, uh, Reggie, or Reggie or Shamit at times, or even all three of those guys together with Trez. And now you're you're asking an undersized center who's only a rim runner to be the main interior scorer on that lineup. But on this bench unit now, there's more ability to get downhill because there's greater spacing thanks to surge. Interesting. Do you think Ty's going to have like what do you think is going to be the biggest difference from Doc's playoff acumen to Ty's? What do you think you're going to notice and fans are going to notice more than anything? Is it just Montrezl Adju- Harrell adjustments? Is not, 
not a, not being around <laughs> in Zubat. No. <laughs> so here's the thing. Trez got a lot of flack and that's unfair to him. The situation he came back into the bubble for was probably the worst anyone had to deal with, which was they were out for several weeks because their grandmother passed away and they came into the bubble late because of that. And their very, his very first game was game one of the Dallas series. He wasn't able to pass health and safety protocols fast enough to get for the uh, seeding game finale against Oklahoma city last year. So his first game was Dallas in the postseason. So anything that happened to him in the postseason, I don't explicitly blame him for that's not his fault. The problem was doc put him into spots that were not conducive to success. And it kind of handicapped the rest of the team. That's on the coach more so than the player with Ty, I think there's an adjustment uh, that he will make. And I don't think he's afraid to, make the hard adjustments or make the hard decisions to not play a guy in certain matchups. He's talked about all year that things are matchup based as far as the team is concerned. So from that standpoint, I think Ty is more malleable to listening to information, digesting it, looking at numbers. Ty loves to look at advanced numbers. I've learned this throughout the season. He talks about them. It's actually rather interesting. Um, I remember in the beginning of the season, the first 10 games, he tried to play uh, a three-man bench lineup as far as guards go of Reggie, Lou, and Luke Kennard. And it wasn't working. It was very bad in the first 10 games. And I remember the 11th game, he switched it up, and he didn't play Reggie, which is very funny considering the season Reggie had for the team ended up having down the road. But he doesn't play Reggie in game 11, and it's Lou and Luke Kennard. They're playing the off the bench as the guard tandem. And we asked him post game about, it. he's like, we didn't like the numbers after the first 10 games. So we decided to change it up. And just hearing that from him, you realize this is not the same team as last year. If something's not working, they're not going to keep bashing their head against the wall, trying to make it work. So adjustments are the one thing I think people need to understand that Tyloo will make in a postseason setting. Let's transition to the Cavs. Um, shout out to hey, it's former team. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I think they're really in an interesting spot. Chris Fedor of Cleveland.com had a really good piece outlining uh, the the Kobe Altman, JB Bickerstaff situation because um, I think Altman's going to get his acumen and or his uh, his accolades and everything uh, put up under review uh, this off season by Dan Gilbert. So his job might not be all that safe. Uh, Bickerstaff, probably the same is true there. But I think it's interesting because in the piece, uh, Fedor says, quote, that forced Bickerstaff to use around 30 different starting lineups this year, which is just just ridiculous. Um, the expected post-deadline starting uh, Quintet, Garland, Sexton, Okoro, Love, and Allen, which is the lineup that we've all wanted to see a lot of, um, logged just 85 minutes together. The most commonly used grouping was Garland, Sexton, Okoro, Nance, and Allen. And that only that group only played 141 minutes. So when I take all the take that into account, I'm just like, man, if I'm in an organization, it's really hard for me to make any any big decisions because it's like we didn't see the minutes. We we don't know. And that's there's so much into it. And then you see like the hundred million dollar plus to Alan, you're like, but we don't even know how they all fit together. Like I I, I am so interested and um uncertain about Cleveland's future and what to do with that grouping. Um, what would you do and what do you make of all of that? It's very tough to evaluate them, especially JB Bickerstaff. Cause I look at it like, here's the guy. So he comes in last year, he's an assistant and then he takes over 
for the final 11 games after John Beeline gets canned. Um, and then the season stops and they have nothing to do for nine months, just nothing to do come back. And now it's in a COVID season where it's all, like, I just think it's hard to evaluate him. And I think it's hard to evaluate this team and how he got them to perform simply because of the setting that everyone was in. This is the toughest year I think to evaluate coaches because no team was left unscathed by COVID protocols or injuries. Everyone got hit in some form of another. There were only three teams this year that didn't have a game postponed. And you look at a team like Cleveland, who is very young. They're, the guy who led them in minutes played this year was their rookie, Isaac Okoro. He led them in total minutes this year, which is not really heard of for a rookie to do in year one. But then I thought Jared Allen played well for them. I thought Darius Garland and Colin Sexton took solid leaps as players. Okoro looked, looked good, especially as a defender. I liked his ability to get to the rim. I liked his ability to finish around the rim. The other part that is really tough is you only had 35 games of Larry Nance and you only had 25 of Kevin Love. So we don't know what they are. We don't know what that group looks like. Now, does that mean Kevin Love might get shipped out? It could. I think that is the most probable thing that would happen to this team because I do think that Larry Nance and Jared Allen is a solid four or five combination, mm-hmm. but it's going to be interesting. I don't, it's also, I believe hard to evaluate Colby Altman because let's be honest. Anytime you lose LeBron James, you're put behind the eight ball and it's a slow build. It's not like you build this back up overnight. So I think this draft, I think this off season is massive for them. What's going to be interesting is if they get the number one pick, because if they get the number one pick, do they take Cade Cunningham, another lead ball handler when they technically already have two? Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I think I'm a lot higher on Garland than I am Sexton. I think Sexton's more of a third guard, more of someone you want as a change of pace guy, someone that you want in your rotation on a good team uh, potentially, but not someone you want uh, as part of your core. Like I just, I don't see core piece with him. I see potentially core piece with Garland. I really like Garland. I think his shooting's real, and I think uh, he's a winning type of player. And Acora is just fun. Um, but we'll see. We'll see what uh, what they do there. I just nothing would surprise me in Cleveland at this point. Um, nothing. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Michael Porter Jr., I hadn't considered had as strong of a most improved player case as he does. Like, it's a very real possibility that the award situation goes Jokic Porter for MVP and MIP. Um, who do you, do you feel stronger about either of them? And also, were you surprised? Because there was really a piece on uh, NBA.com uh, for the Nuggets site highlighting, like, his, his credentials. And it's just something where I was like, huh. Like, I, you know he's been better. You know he's shooting lights out. You know he's shooting 44% or whatever it is right now from three. But it's also just like he's figured it out defensively and just all across the board, which is a big thing for most improved because we always just kind of knew that he was going to be an offensive force. But now we know that he can play team defense uh, with Malone and he's earned Malone's trust, which is, I think, a very big thing, especially when you lose Grant. And that was a big worry was the depth in the wing and if Porter could – make it work and Jokic and Porter can make it work defensively. And um, I think that's been the case, but he's had like the most efficient season out offensively outside of Wilt Chamberlain. I want to (laughs) say from this piece. And I'm just like, I, that's pretty raw, pretty wild. And uh, since the break, he's averaging 22, seven still just 22, but I don't know, man, I I'm not opposed to uh, Michael Porter jr. Winning MIP. What about you? So 
I feel much stronger about Jokic for MVP. I think mm. that is the slam dunk of the offseason as far as awards. Like he's getting MVP. It's happening. I hope people are ready for it because that is what it will take place. We're sure Steph as far is not going to sneak in there. I, I, I just can't see it. Okay. I really can't. I just look at it from the point of view of like a, a guy on a seven seed winning MVP I mean, yes, Westbrook won it as a six seed, but that was in an 82-game season where his team, I think, won like 46, 48 games, something like that. So it wasn't some absurd – like it wasn't like his team was closer to average than not. Um, as far as most improved <clears throat> is concerned, I'm still leaning pretty heavily towards Julius Randle hmm. because the leap that Randle took – was probably more incredible to me than the leap Porter took. Like, yes, Porter jumped 10 points per game, basically. He went from 9 to 19. Like, that's an incredible leap. But you look at what Randall did. He jumps by about 5 points per game. He doubles his assists per game, and he is super efficient on one of the best teams in the Eastern Conference. That And he's, and he's the main weapon for them. He's hitting step-back. You know, mid-range jumpers in people's faces, pull-up threes. He was so important to them on both sides of the floor, uh, but more so on the offensive end, that I couldn't go away from him as most improved. Porter, I think, has a top three case. I think he's there with, like, Jeremy Grant. I think the leap that Jeremy Grant took was real in Detroit. I think the leap that Shea Gildas-Alexander took in Oklahoma City was real. Like, there are some interesting cases. I'd still lean towards Julius Randle, though, for now. I don't hate the Randall pick, and I think he's maybe the more fun story. And I think it's also just like, I, I think we have to look at it different. It all is just interpretation, and that's what makes debating these awards so frustrating is everyone has their own interpretation of what's the most invaluable, what constitute most improve, what we look for in six man. Like, it's all different from person to person. I don't think there's a right answer here. But I also just think that, like, because Porter is just, he's basically doing what we thought he was going to do right like if his health had not been such a scare for teams coming into the draft and like basically not playing at all at mizzou um him not falling and all that kind of stuff the expectations were lowered for him but i think had he not had the back stuff and the injury stuff coming out that this would not be a conversation because it'd just be like well yeah that's what he's doing he's developing because he was the most talented player or the second most talented player in his draft class like he's coming along as he should like this is what he should be doing and that's how i interpret most improved player of like they're not doing what they should be doing or what they've shown to be and they've changed their game they, they've they changed something for the better at a point where most guys don't don't change and i think randall fits that bill more than porter i would say in terms of just being like what we thought he could be as a player is just different and it's just pretty rare for guys to make this kind of just change right so my thing for most improved, to be honest, is I tend to look at the guys on really good teams that took a leap from the year before and were essentially their team's best player. Mm -hmm. So last year, for the record, I would if I had a vote, I would have given my most improved vote to Jason Tatum mm. because he led that Boston team. He took a massive leap on both sides of the floor and he was by far their best player. I thought that the leap he took was incredible. They ended up being the third seed that uh, last season. And if you're telling me a 21-year-old on a third-seeded team took a leap like he did in both points, rebounds, assists, 
efficiency, defense, all these things, I thought he should have been the guy. So I tend to favor better teams because I think it's tougher to take a massive leap on a good to great team than it is to take a massive leap on a worse team just because your usage rate goes up in general. What I like to see is your usage rate goes up, obviously, but your efficiency goes up and you're impacting winning and you're, or you're impacting both ends of the floor, even if your team isn't that great. So that's why I lean a little bit towards Julius Randle more than anybody else because you look at him and even if he finishes the fifth seed, like, yeah, because they're tied in the uh, – and win percentage with the Hawks. So even if they finished at five, I'd still feel the same way about Julius Randle at four. Um, with Porter, he's an incredible scorer, has one of the best shots in the league. He's He has really improved as a defender, especially as a shot blocker when players are not expecting it. I've noticed he has a lot of blocks on players from behind. When they turn their back to go to the rim, he will trail them off of his own man to get a block. That's actually a very smart play. It can cost you if the guy is smart enough and, you know, uh, kicks the ball out, swing, swing, and then you're killed. But it's not killing Denver for the most part. But for now, I'd still lean towards Randall. But the leap that Porter took was real, and they needed it. Because one of the things that no one really talked about with Denver is I don't think Aaron Gordon was as good for Denver as people thought he would be, especially offensively. Defensively, he was good. I think he left a lot desired offensively, especially as a shooter. Yeah, that's that's fair. Um, as we wrap up here, how do you uh, how do you foresee the Zach Levine situation unfolding in Chicago? Because we're now getting rumblings, like Arturis has talked about it a little bit um about the contract because they he's under contract for one more year they can renegotiate and extend him this offseason but he's going to get more pricey and he becomes a unrestricted free agent if they don't come to terms uh before the season i think it'd probably be unlikely that he would uh restructure mid-season next year um he probably wants to cash in after the kind of year that he had um how would you approach it if you're a tourist in the bulls front office what i've heard explained was the most plausible scenario would be the restructure and resign mm-hmm. because they have to use some of the money and it's a little bit better to use it like that than kind of to just blow it on some things that you really don't need. Um, what really hamstrung them. And I say hamstrung, not in like a bad sense, just it, it put, it painted them into a corner more or less is trading for Vucevic really kind of sends the message that you have to re-sign Levine. Because mm-hmm. I don't think you trade for him unless you're hell-bent on re-signing Levine. Yeah. So I ultimately think that is the move. I don't know what any of the curse like the, the any of the moves on the periphery, I should say. I don't know what any of those moves might, might be. Maybe they trade Kobe White. Maybe that's the thing. Maybe they believe in Patrick anything, Williams. Right? Like, Kobe White stinks. He's a backup combo guard. Like, I don't... What is the point? Like, who's trading any real asset for him? I mean... We think that that's how we perceive it, but you never mm. know in the league. That's true. Like second year guy, just averaged 15 a game, five assists, shot 36% from three, has a solid off the dribble game. Yeah, maybe go get Aaron teams... Brooks, somebody. Go overpay for Aaron uh, Brooks. <laughs> well, I mean, if you look at it from the point of view of maybe a team will view him and just go, you know what, on a different team in a different role alongside more defenders, maybe it goes differently for him. Mm. That could be the thought process. So I could see where there is Kobe White intrigue. You know, he'll be going into his third year. He'll still be 21. Teams would probably be interested in that. As far as Levine goes, I think you just got to pay him. I think you bite the bullet and pay him. 
Um, he's a wonderful, wonderful offensive player. I, I, I am awestruck by the leap that he has taken as an offensive player over the years because when he came in, he wasn't really considered a shooter. He was, here's this athletic guy, and that was it. Yeah. And then he rounded into shape as a playmaker, rounded into shape as a shooter, became an incredible scorer over the last three years, and especially this year overall. It's really staggering to see the leap he's made just with Chicago. And I feel like you have to reward that because if you don't, I don't know what else you can do unless they really do perceive, Hey, let's see what we can get. Maybe we get someone we really do think is a superstar, but at the end of the day, Zach Levine's pretty much all you have left after trading Jimmy Butler and if you trade Zach Levine or you don't extend Zach Levine, I don't know how the fan base reacts to that. That's fair. All right, we'll leave it there. Jared, what uh, what can we check out from you across uh, Clips and Roll and the Patreon everything else? So if you want to follow uh, the podcast, on also on the Blue Wire Network, it's Clip and Roll. I do uh, try to do a weekly one there. Schedule's been very hectic lately because of personal things and because, you know, the NBA schedule has just overall been hectic for everybody. Yeah. But uh, you can also go to my Patreon, patreon.com slash flybynight. That's F-L-Y-B-Y-K-N-I-T-E. You can also find me on Twitter at flybynight. All right. Well, keep up the great work. And, uh, you know, let's uh, let's check in again soon. This was fun talking NBA with you, man. It was great, man. I appreciate it. All right. We move on the Wednesday edition of the Chase Notes podcast, where I am now joined by Ku Khalil, who hosts Locked On Pistons, Detroit Bad Boys writer, knowing, knowing just everything all uh, Detroit Pistons, because the Pistons are interesting. Their season has concluded and i am very fascinated about the direction of this franchise where they're going the Cade cunningham prospects everything about detroit is fascinating to me at the moment even as all eyes are on lebron and steph tonight Koo, good afternoon how are you i'm doing good how are you i'm good man i'm good um if you were asked like you're at a you're at a bar post facts post everything and Someone finds out that you're a Pistons writer and you're a Pistons podcaster and you watched every game this season. How do you, and they were like, Hey, what, what happened? Why were they so bad? What was the season like? What, uh, what did you make of the current state of the Detroit Pistons? How would you answer that question? Um, I, I'd start off by with a quick answer. Just they did it on purpose <laughs> and, and they have a direction that they're going in. They they know what they're doing, or at least say they know what they're doing. We believe them. And so far, they've executed the plan that they said they're trying to do. And it it's going to take a minute, but they're on their way. Killian Hayes, Sadiq Bey, Isaiah Stewart. How would you describe their growth this season? Was it all linear for these three? Like they all just gradually figured it out? Because Isaiah Stewart down the stretch was doing some stuff where he was taking people off the dribble, dunking late this season, saw some of that. You saw Sadiq Bey, just absolute shooter. He looks like a great role player for the long term. Um, And then Killian Hayes getting some some opportunities post Ellen Wright and everything. So how would you describe the development of those three? Um, I would say for Killian, it started off really rough. Uh, I, I'm not going to say he was playing injured, but 
after seven games, he ended up sitting out multiple months due to an injury, a hip injury. And in those first seven games, he just didn't look uh, very, very good at all. Uh, he he looked like he was a bit slow. He looked like he wasn't able to do much, and it was it was it, it was a tough spot for him. Uh, when he came back from injury, I believe on April third, he, uh, he he looked a lot better for the rest of the year. He still has the struggles. He still has a lot of stuff he needs to get better. But since he came back, there was a foundation. There was a base that you can see where, like, for, for like the first seven games, you didn't see like what it was that made people really love him and think he could be this star or whatever. In the final like 19 games he played, while he still has some stuff to improve and needs to get better, you saw like okay, I can see why people think so highly of him. I, I can see where like this can go, where he can get better at, and how he can become like a legit star. So that that's that's good for him. Uh, was Isaiah Stewart? Isaiah Stewart completely shocked everyone and over like overachieved and just shattered every expectation had for him. I still remember. When the Pistons drafted him, almost every draft grade I saw gave him like a C minus or a D plus on his draft grade, and talked about he just was like one of them. I believe called him prehistoric, and that he was a dinosaur basically in this league, and he just was a bad pick. And he's just he completely shattered the expectation. He was start shooting threes this year, which we were told he could start shooting them next year by doing Casey, but then I guess he accelerated a year and started taking threes already this year. Uh, like you mentioned, down the stretch, he started taking dudes off the dribble on closeouts, which is like, what for a big guy to do? <laughs> um, so he, he's he's just – and he I, I believe he led the, the all rookies in blocks and rebounds. So he's he's spectacular. He has spectacular rookie season. And then Sadiq Bey, who I think uh, – I know Zach Lowe put his first-team rookie team and somehow had Sadiq Bey off of it. Um, but I think there's no way – uh, that Sadiq Bey is not all rookie first team. He's second in scoring. He had the most five plus three point games and uh, of any rookie ever. And he was absolutely going to shatter the rookie three point record if he played eighty two games. He was, I believe, he's what third. I think he finished third in seventy one games he played seventy. Um, and that yeah. So if they he, if we had a full eighty two game season, he would have just shattered that. So Sadiq Bey is really good. Um, I, I feel like a little bit with Sadiq Bey that he might be. I think Sadiq Bey is the closest one to his ceiling already. Mm-hmm. Uh, he may prove me wrong. I don't think anybody really thought any of these guys were going to be, or well, outside of Killing. I don't think anyone thought Sadiq or Isaiah Stewart would be as good as they are right now. So I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be the first time to be wrong, but I think he's probably closer to his ceiling than all that than the other two. But either way, all three of them uh, gave you reason to be optimistic and happy about this team, specifically. Isaiah Stewart and Sadiq Bey. And if you really like Killian, you saw what uh, the foundation that you really like from him. You just need to see the improvements over the offseason. Who's the ideal swing guy next to Killian and Sadiq Bey? You talking about from the draft? No, just like skill set wise. Because I think it's going to be interesting to figure out how they're going to navigate building around these guys with Stewart, Hayes, and Sadiq especially. But um, with what you've seen from Killian, who is the right running mate with him? What kind of player? Um, I, so I think there's two different ways they can go. Uh, first, I think you'd want a shooter because Killian needs as much space as possible to to operate because as of right now, like hopefully he gets better at it over the next few years. But right now he needs as much space as possible to operate in pick and rolls and he can get really frustrated and then get bothered by uh, 
closed uh what's the word like closed in areas uh tiny areas to work in so you'd want uh a shooter there i would say probably but i think honestly in in the bigger picture who i would rather have i'd like to have someone who can run the floor with them and 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 succeed in transition so i actually recorded a podcast yesterday and i was looking at who his best two-man lineups were um since he came back from injury and over the last 19 games it wasn't Sadiq bay uh, it wasn't Isaiah Stewart, but it was Seku Dumboya, who I really, I'm really high on Seku. But the point is, is that Seku loves to run the floor. Seku is probably one of the best uh, end-to-end runners on the court that I've seen in a very long time. So him and him and Killian have this great synergy because Killian likes to get the ball out the basket, either even if it's off off a defensive rebound or off an inbound pass, he likes to take it and immediately go and try to get it while the defense is scrambling. And that fits perfectly with what Seku likes to do, and they really succeeded on the court. Uh, according to their net rating and how many points they scored on the floor, I believe their net rating was a minus 0.2, which was the best out of the out of the core three of uh, Killian and Sadiq, Killian and Isaiah Stewart, and Killian and I'm drawing a blank now who the other one was. But either way, uh, Seku had that best one, and so I think that Killian probably would rather have someone who can run with him and run the floor. So like this year he played like we had a little bit of Wayne Ellington, um, honestly. I think Frank Jackson, like a, a similar archetype of like Frank Jackson, except better. Uh, and that's not to uh, uh, troll Frank Jackson, who was freaking amazing for the Pistons. Um, but like an archetype like Frank Jackson, maybe a little taller, but someone who can shoot, but also really springy. Uh, that could probably fit with right there because Killian loves to run the break. Interesting. Um, who are some potential free agent targets that interest you uh, this offseason for the Pistons? Um, I'm going to say there's not really any, Tory Reaver came out like two days ago and said that he, like, don't expect major, uh, major additions to the team. Don't expect too many of them. He thinks all of them are in-house. Mm. And while, while I said that, I said in my podcast, I believe he's lying, uh, because he said one or two spots maybe would become available and we already have four draft picks. So that's already a lie. I don't believe you can <laughs> draft somebody and not sign them. So I, I think he's lying with that. But according to free agency, I do think he's probably telling somewhat of the truth. I think maybe he might get like a veteran, like on the vet men or something like that. But I think the main free agent target for the Pistons is their own restricted free agent, uh, Hamidou Diallo. I think he's at the top of their priority list. They have to get Hami back. He's He has incredible potential. Uh, so I, I think he's their main priority there. And then also Frank Jackson, I think, is their next priority. Interesting. Um, I need you to explain Josh Jackson to me. <laughs> what what do you mean <laughs> i so i don't know if folks know this or not but for uh, josh jackson has a 25.5 usage rate which is the 91st percentile in the nba this year um he's still somehow only 23 years old i mean it feels like he has been in the league and been on every single team in those few years that he's been in the league um is he good what what is the josh jackson experience been like for you all right so josh this I, people who haven't watched the Pistons are probably going to laugh at this, but Josh has been honestly really good for the Pistons. Mm. Like early, So like earlier in the season, the, the thing with Josh this year, and it really sucks, is that Josh had – the thing that like slowed his season down constantly was injuries. He'd have these nagging injuries. So like For example, I, I've, I've written about this and made multiple videos about this because it was just so frustrating to deal with. So like for his first six game of the year – 
He averaged uh, 15.5 points. He ended up taking the starting position immediately after the first two games. He was just playing absurdly well and was like, when Josh wants to get to the basket, he's getting yeah. to the basket. Like I haven't seen many people be able to stop him getting the basket. It's what happens once he gets there. Um, he's able to convert a lot of tough finishes because he's just so freaking athletic. But I, I've said this many times that just because you can make tough finishes doesn't mean you should make a living out of making tough finishes. Like when you get to the rim, you should probably look to pass sometimes so you're not making life harder on you constantly. And I think that's his biggest problem. But like, for example, so like I said, the first six games of the season, he averaged 15.5 points a game. Then he had a leg injury in, uh, in the game against Boston. He comes back and tries to play through it. And that's when it just goes downhill. He tries to play through it for like the next, like, uh, I don't know, let's say the next like week and a half or so. And then his percentages just shoot down. He averages seven points a game. He shoots 32% from the field. It just, it, it goes bad. It So that was over, how many games was that? That was over 10 games. He struggled really bad there. Then after that, he, t- he misses a game, comes back, and he seems to be back healthy. And then over the next, let's, uh, right here. So like over the next 15 games, now he's back to scoring 17 points a game. He's shooting 45% from the field, shooting 31% from deep. Not great, but still, he's playing really well. Then he gets hurt again. Uh, he deals with, I think this time it was uh, something with his calf. Um, he ends up dealing with that, so then he misses multiple games again. So then he comes back and tries playing through it. He he struggles again shooting, let's see what this one was on. Uh, he ends up shooting 38% from the field, only 10 points a game. So the main thing with Josh was that he constantly would get into this stretch where he'd play extremely well and then just have like this injury that would just take him off his game. He'd try to come back, play through it, and then eventually what would happen each time it's like with this stretch, he'd come back from injury, try to play through it, play like trash for a couple games, then he'd miss another game to try to rest it. Then he'd come back, and then over the next, and then over the next month, the entire month of of April, he goes out here and he scores eighteen point or seventeen points a game on forty seven percent shooting, forty percent from deep. Uh, so, Josh Jackson, if you look, if you like looked at his uh, season in like intervals, like when he was actually healthy. He was extremely good, like not just good. He was like a like a fantastic signing. It's just that when he got hurt and tried to play through it, um, it it, it really weighed down his averages. Now a lot of people will be like, "Well, injuries are a part of it." Yeah, I get it. But if he could just get through a season without getting hurt or without like having to play through injury, I think he would have a major breakout season. Because I at the, at the beginning of the year, it looked like he was about to break out bad because he took the starting position instantly after like the game two. And was like one of the Pistons' best scorers instantly, and he was and and like the makings are there. He's extremely talented. He can get to the rim whenever he wants. Uh, his defense, which I I've listened to a bunch of Suns people uh, talk about him. The main thing over there, they say he didn't really try. He wasn't very active on defense. He didn't have much hustle. Blah blah. That could not be a complete one. Like it's a complete one eighty here. I think him seeing that his career is almost over and he was basically playing in the G League riding buses back in uh, like a year ago, a year and a half ago. Changed his career completely. At one point in the season, only him and Michael Porter Jr. were uh, one of the uh, wings to average one block and one steal a game. Hmm. He ended up not being able to do that uh, to finish the season. But still, like he av- he ended the season with .9 steals and .8 blocks. But still, at one point in the season, I remember tweeting that him and Michael Porter Jr. were one of the two only two wings to be able to average both of those. So he's incredible on defense, incredible hustle. He tries hard nonstop. I think that's his biggest problem, kind of is like Russell Westbrook syndrome, where he just like tries hard nonstop and he doesn't know when to like t- uh, press the brakes. But even with that, he shows like 
and last, I, I'm so I know I'm ranting. I'm sorry, but no, this is good. Uh, uh, but the thing with Josh that kind of like makes it the most frustrating is that he has this passing vision, and he shows off this like he shows off like some incredible passes over a game, and then you just think to yourself like, then he goes to the rim, he tries to finish on three people when someone's open in the corner. You're just like, Josh, I've seen you make, I just saw you make this pass two two plays ago. Why didn't you make the pass here? So it's he he's capable of making tough finishes. He's capable of getting to the line, drawing fouls. He hustles hard. He's incredible on defense. It's it's just that one he needs to be healthy, and two his decision making. If it, if his decision making can get better, and he can choose like better spots to to try these tough finishes and and actually make the right pass, I, I think you'd see a breakout season from Josh. Don't I'm not going to rule out that Josh has a breakout season next year or the year after that. Like he's still. Like you said, he just turned 24, so he's he's still. I, I'm just gonna say this: don't don't put it past the fact that Josh could have a breakout season at some point. Because if he stays healthy for a year, for a year, I could absolutely see it. We're looking at 2025 right now. Put on your clairvoyant Haku. Is Dwayne Casey okay. allowed to see the this rebuild through? No, I don't. That's think so, that's yeah. my that's 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 the short answer. I think they gave him that. That extension because he this season was easily his best coached year mm. with the Pistons. He got them to play hard every night, got them to beat some teams they shouldn't have beat. Uh, even in their losses, I believe I saw an article written by somebody the other week that said the Pistons are in the middle of executing the, the best tank session of all time because they're like in, like they're competing in every game, almost winning every game, but just losing it just barely at the end. So it's not like they're out there just throwing, but they're not winning either. So it was like that part really made it easier to watch, and you credit that to Dwayne Casey, so that's why he got his one-year extension, I believe it was, but I just, I've never been a big fan of Dwayne Casey. I try to be easier on him now because of what he's in right now and how well he did this year with them, but I think if you talk to a lot of Toronto people, uh, if you talk to a bunch of Pistons people when the Pistons were actually trying to win for his first, uh, what was it, first year here, first year and a half, um, he's, I, I would say I don't think he's the I don't think he's the coach that you want coaching your team when you want to win. That's that's what I'll say. It's amazing that we've talked this much and haven't brought up your number one option in Grant. Um, how did how did he approach being the lead option? Do you think it was something that is something that you should consider long term? Do you think it's going to be kind of hard to? be like, hey, we're going to add, and like you bring in a Cade Cunningham or whatever, and it's like, okay, Jeremy, thank you for your your service <laughs> during our tank season, being a number one option and carrying the offense and things like that, or do you think it's going to be uh, amicable on both sides with the way they do it? Like, What do you make of his season, where he was effective, his high usage, and just building an offense around Jeremy Grant? What was that like? So Jeremy, Jeremy was freaking amazing. Like that's that's literally like the best way to say it. Like you, it's it's hard to explain it. Like I can I can explain it, but you really like unless you watched it, it's hard to like completely encapsulate like how amazing he was. Uh, so like just put it in perspective. Like before the season, people said this dude couldn't do anything. Like on, with the ball in his hands, they were saying that this was one of the worst signings they'd seen. They literally start comparing this dude to Josh Smith in Detroit, which is just it's it's insane. And then in his preseason, he was struggling in the preseason, and everyone was taking victory laps. Everyone was saying how, oh, we're right, he's just bad, he should never try to be anything more than just a complimentary player, blah, blah, blah. And then the season starts. 
And this dude starts going crazy. He starts doing ISO moves. He starts taking everyone to the basket. He's shooting good from deep. He's drawing fouls. He's there's. I don't think there's one thing that Jeremy Grant did this season that anybody outside of maybe me and a few other people thought that he could possibly do. He was just and he and the thing is about Jeremy is that he did all this while still being a really good defender. So like this, this give you an example here. So before the season. Everyone thought that there was no way he could do anything. Now, again, I'm going to say it again. Anything with the ball in his hands. Like, it was all over the place. They they said that he just didn't have the handle. He wasn't capable of doing it. He's not that type of dude. This season for the Pistons, he scored 0.97 points per possession in isolation in the 71st percentile. That that would be rated as very good by Synergy. Off handoffs, he is in the 77th percentile, 1.08 points per possession. Coming off screens, 60, 60th uh percentile which they would rank as good uh, in transition 66th percentile very good pick and roll ball handler they rated him as average but the main thing i want want to point out the main thing we're gonna stick on is that isolation he was rated as very good this is the same dude that they said was not capable of doing anything with the ball in his hands and he's one of the best isolation players in the league this year so he was amazing when when blake and uh derrick rose got got uh well, Blake got bought out, and then Derek got traded. When them two got got out of there, it was it, it started to get a little bit harder for him because teams would like st- send double teams at him, and they would focus their entire team uh, defense on him. And you could tell that was starting to bother him. He hadn't seen that yet, and it was it was starting to get at him. But even at that point, like it's not like he was, oh god, now he's averaging like twelve points a game. Like he was still getting up his points. His efficiency started dropping, which everybody like from outside Detroit will look at and be like, "Oh yeah, well you see his efficiency dropping. We see that we knew this was coming." If you watch the games, you you would see it, that wasn't what the case was. It was the fact that okay, this team doesn't have anybody else to we have to really guard, so we're going to all put like the entire emphasis on Jeremy. And of course, your efficiency is going to drop, especially if it's your first year as a main guy. If the entire defense is focusing on you now and you have nobody else on the on the court who can create their own shot. It's going to be pretty tough for you, but he still was showcasing. The main thing is that he was showcasing the ability still to have some really creative finishes. Like I would say, so like this would be a great indicator, I would say. So let's go ahead and just do these quick games. So like we can do since February seventeenth. Uh, um, so we'll go. That was when I'd say like he started struggling mid February. It started to or not struggle. I would say I don't want to say he struggled because he still looked pretty good. It's just the efficiency started to drop. Even with that efficiency dropping, he still was getting to the free throw line 6.7 times a game. So that right there, like, shows you is that even with like the team focusing on, he's knowing he he's learning how to draw fouls. He's being aggressive, getting to the basket. He's still getting there. Uh, I I would say he probably should have averaged even more free throws. He doesn't get the best whistle in the league, and I think that comes with him being his first year as a main guy. But overall, his his season as and I think it's kind of funny that you mentioned it, how, oh, we've been on here talking and we haven't even mentioned Jeremy Grant. Yeah, that's that's kind of how it's went over in Detroit. Like every once like the team started to like go outright and tank over the past month and they just started sitting him, not letting him play. Like everyone just like seemed to forget that Jeremy Grant is having this spe- spectacular season for for the Pistons. Everyone's only talking about Killian. Everyone's talking about Sadiq, Isaiah Stewart. And everyone just has like kind of forgotten that Jeremy Grant has had a fantastic year. But it is what it is. I think Jeremy is going to be here for the long haul. Uh, James Edwards of the Athletic 
wrote this article about why he signed with the Pistons. It wasn't just about the team or wanting to have the first option. And he talked about being um, a black man in a black city with a black GM and a black head coach and something he wants to that he, he really uh, wants to be a part of, bring the city back because, like I said, he feels it's a black city and all that stuff. So there, there's a lot of deep-rooted stuff, apparently, for why he signed to Detroit. And him and Troy Reaver have like this connection as well. Troy Reaver apparently has watched him for like over a decade since he was a kid. So like there's 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 a bunch of reasons why he's here. So I expect him to be here for the long haul. Okay. Well, we have to wrap up here. What uh, can we look out from you across uh, Lockdown Pistons and Detroit Bad Boys this week? So I'm going to be on the Lockdown Pistons daily for the rest of the week. We have a guest coming on, one of the Detroit Pistons beat writers. But yeah, you can just find me over there daily. We talk about all the uh, news with the Pistons, anything, any drama that comes out on Twitter with you guys. We talk about it. Uh, we're going to try to start talking about more future stuff, more random hypotheticals, not that the offseason is uh, over. But yeah, basically, you can find me there daily, Monday through Friday, talking about the Pistons. All right. Well, keep up the great work, man. And thank you so much for making the time. I greatly appreciate it. Yep. Thank you for having me. All right. We're back as we continue on the Wednesday edition of the Chase Thomas podcast, where I'm now joined by Bill Williamson, who covers the Las Vegas Raiders. Bill, good morning sir how are you hey thanks for having me do you still put uh oakland raiders from time to time or are you all the way in on las vegas raiders now do you... knock on wood. i don't think i ever have i'll probably do that today though <laughs> thank you but uh yeah i've uh yeah i um i i may have said it on a podcast or something but hey, it's gonna happen and you know what i'm not that's um stop moving so much if you don't want, if you want to be called the right team yeah yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I, I I worry about calling them San Diego Chargers still, and they haven't been there in four years. <laughs> absolutely, I, I can't believe it's already been four years. Um, I want to start off here. Why does it Why does it feel like the Raiders and Raiders fans will never be truly happy with Derek Carr quarterback? Yeah, I mean that's a big subject to start with. Um, I, I think it's a, a I think it's a faction with uh, the the fans, and it's interesting that you said the Raiders too, because that means the, the, the decision makers. And you know, I mean, and that's the whole ball of wax too, because they say, well, you know, hey, this is John Green's fourth year, and he still has car there, but every year there's rumors and talk that they're going to trade for somebody or draft somebody, and. You know, you say, well, that's just rumors, but, you know, the fact that they go to all these pro days and the fact that Ian Rappaport, who's pretty connected inside of that building, two picks before the, the Raiders picking at 17 saying, hey, you know, they, they may take a quarterback here if he gets past New England and, and, and 16, and he wasn't going to get past 16. And then the quarterback they're talking about is Mac Jones, and, of course, he went to – uh, uh, New England at 15. So, yeah, I mean, they did that speculation by always looking at these rookie quarterbacks. And, you know, Mike Mayock has said, um, you know, we're always kind of looking to upgrade everywhere. So that's kind of their out. Uh, eventually they will replace Derek Carr. 
whether it's next year or whether it's in a month in a trade for Aaron Rodgers or whether it's in eight years, you know, it's going to happen. It's just when, you know, if the answer is eight years, well, that tells us that they ended up liking Derek Carr, didn't they? Because they kept him for a decade. So, um, yeah, and then fans, you know, some fans like Derek Carr and some don't. Um, and that's, you're just going to have to, you're just going to have that. Uh, you know, some fans don't like Hall of Fame players. So that's just kind of the deal. Um, you know, I've heard Derek Carr be referenced as the most polarizing player in Raider history. And I'd have to think about it a little bit. But, you know, that, that might be a, an accurate tag. I wonder how much it wears on him. Like, I can't imagine that this is good for your psyche to just go into every season where you're like, well, I guess I'm still here. <laughs> um, they're like, I don't know. It's just got to be really strange for him to know that, like, a, a large portion of the fan base is looking for the next guy and the coaching staff still kind and Mayock and everybody else is kind of looking at the next guy, but then they're also not drafting the next guys and they're not making the trade for the next guy. So there's obviously some level of trust there and everything. And it's just, I mean, he can be really good. We, when we see the best of Derek Carr, we've seen that he can be an AFC MVP. Like that's, that was a thing that we have seen out of him at one point or another in his career. And that's always going to make maybe the Derek Carr experience more difficult is just that you know it's there it's just can it be there for 17 games um when you look at this draft uh for the raiders what uh what picks stood out to you that you liked and what stood out to you that you didn't like uh well i mean yeah this is an interesting draft i think i think the trevon Moritz pick at number 43 in the second round saved the draft um that may sound dramatic, but I really think so. Um, they, um, you know, it was interesting. The, the, the first safety, which was the Raiders' second or biggest need, you know, with free, uh, with, excuse me, with right tackle, didn't go off the board. Holland went off the board at 36 to Miami. And then Richie Grant, a lot of people who thought the Raiders were 48, Right at 40, so now they're starting to freak out because there's only one guy that they really, really fits at this point as a starter, and it's Morig, and now they're burning the phone lines, and Dallas is looming at 44, and they get a deal done. John Gruden gets a deal done for his former player, John Lynch, with 49ers at 43, and it only cost 48 and number 20, 121 in the fourth round to move up not that bad to get a, you know, a guy of Morris caliber. So I think that really saved the Raiders draft that that trade couldn't happen. I think the Raiders would have been stuck. Um, you know, and then the, the Leatherwood pick, of course, at 17, a lot of people say, Hey, if you would have, they would have got more at 17 and Leatherwood at 43, we'd be praising it. And it was flip flop. So do you still praise it? You know, maybe, um, you know, here's the deal. Leatherwood. It was a reach. It was a reach. Um, no other way to slice it. They, they could have got high, better, highly rated players. They could have traded out and got him lower. But at the end of the day, now that we're sitting a month out of it, who really gives a crap if it was a reach? It was their decision. They, they, that, that's who the Raiders. They, they have the, that was their, they, they had the privilege of picking at seventeen, and they picked the guy that they wanted. That's on him. That's on them too, particularly them. So if he becomes a, a Pro ball player, a Hall of Fame player, it's a terrific pick. If he doesn't and he doesn't live up to that 
17. So I mean, that that's on them too. And that's really just what the draft is for every team, right? That's the same deal with Trevor Lawrence. So the Raiders are comfortable with the pick. So I guess the fans should be comfortable with the pick and let's see what happens. Now on that flip side, Clint Farrell was considered a reach at number four two years ago. Damon Arnett was considered a reach at 19 last year. So this is a trend. And thus far, and these guys can also develop into star players, they haven't shown they, their, their early returns and the guys are not strong. So the Raiders aren't getting, maybe we shouldn't give them the benefit of doubt with another reach. So does that all make sense? Yeah, Leatherwood could be a good player. It's not his fault that he's picked at 17. Let's see what he can do. But this is a trend that hasn't been working out thus far. Maybe Leatherwood changes that trend. Maybe he doesn't. Interesting. Um, where are they still lean on the depth chart? When you look at projected starters and where they've got depth of ground um, with the draft now uh, in the back of our minds, like where are they still thin? Well, uh, I don't, you know, it's interesting. I don't know if there's any real holes per se. There wasn't mm. any real holes last year per se. I think there's more, I think there's more questions. When you look at the Raiders roster, it's more questions than needs. Um, cause that we know who's starting. We just don't know if these guys are going to be able to, to handle it. Like we know that the, there's the young quarter, the young secondary is there. We don't know if it's going to be any good. We know the linebackers are set. We don't know if Kwiatkowski and Wilton are going to uh, are, are going to have the impact that the Raiders thought they were last year when they signed the big contracts. So that they have a new defensive front. We don't know if these guys are going to be any good. We know that they have they've replaced Trent Brown, uh, Ronnie Hudson, and and Gabe Jackson. We don't know if those young guys are going to get it done. So that's that's kind of the questions is that can these guys perform well in 2021? Interesting. Um, <clears throat> when you look at the schedule, the 17-game schedule, which is still going to take some time getting used to it, but um, how did the schedule work out for the Raiders? Do you do you like this? Is this a 10 and seven type schedule and nine and eight type schedule? What do, what do you make of it? Well, you know, I think a little too much is made of the schedule, particularly when it comes out in the spring, because we just, just don't we don't know who's going to be better than we thought. We don't know who's going to be worse than we thought. We don't know what quarterbacks are going to get injured, you know. So, you know, schedules do change, um, you know, as far as difficulty. You know, right now the Raiders are being ranked either the the hardest or the second hardest you know, and a lot to do with that is that they were second place in the AFC last year, and the AFC was really strong, and they played the Chiefs a lot. So, of course, that type of schedule is going to be hard, you know, based on the year before. Um, I, I think the real couple keys to this schedule is that, you know, what, what do they always say? you got to start strong and you got to finish strong. So that's kind of a cliche, but the Raiders – the way the Raiders' schedule is set up, they really those are really challenging parts of the schedule for the Raiders. So they really have to navigate the early part of the schedule and, and you know, December and, and January. Their first four games is Baltimore at home, Monday Night Football, Pittsburgh on the road, 
Miami at home, Chargers on the road on Monday Night Football. All four teams are AFC playoff contenders. And if the Raiders think they're going to be an AFC playoff contender, they're going to have to do some, make some hay in that early part of the schedule. Um, the end, and this is highlighted by road trips in mid-December to Kansas City, back to back, Kansas City and Cleveland. Those should be really strong AFC teams. And, you know, if the Raiders need to get stay in the playoffs, they're going to have to win in late December. Those are going to be some tough, likely weather of challenge games. So those are really the, the, the Raiders got to need to really take advantage of some games in the middle of the season when they play the Eagles and the Giants and the Broncos. That's when they're going to really have to start to stack some wins. Interesting. Um, is there another level for Darren Waller to reach, or do you think this is, this is peak? Is there anything that he can add to his game? Is there anything that he can do and the Raiders can scheme up for him to even unlock another level where it's like, you know, Travis Kelsey and George Kittle are awesome, but like Darren Waller might just be the, the best of the three. The best of the what? Best tight end? Yes, of the three, yeah. Yeah, I don't know if he's the best. He's really Well, no, what I'm saying is there anything that he can do to get to that level? Is there anything left for him to maximize? Yeah, I, I, I think he's really good. I think he's a guy who, um, you know, yeah, we may look at his the end of his career and go, God, if he just would have started a little earlier, this guy might be end up in the Hall of Fame. And, and maybe he can end up in the Hall of Fame. I am... I am a, a huge Darren Waller fan of his incredible because of his incredible story. It just doesn't happen at all. I mean, if, if people, you know, he was like a six round pick. He was suspended. He had serious substance abuse issues. He was on the practice squad in Baltimore. The Raiders coaching staff saw him working out in 2018 before a game in Baltimore. Just, you know, in sweats, just breaking a sweat, just practicing, you know, he's not playing. Um, the Raiders were an awful team in 2004, talent depleted. They they saw this guy, and by the end of the night, they had him set up coming to the Raiders from the Ravens' squad. And uh, when when they signed him to the practice squad, I was like, okay, whatever. Just another in-season move. Um, and then this guy starts making plays and plays and plays, and, and then – and then the next year in 2019, he just breaks out and he just stud from the start. And then he gets a contract extension and he signs it. And it turns out that he's vastly underpaid now, but that's not his fault for not signing that. And it's not the Raiders for being cheap. I mean, they, they, they gave him a leap of faith. They gave him an excellent contract for that point in his career. And, and now, you know, he is a top three uh, tight end, and yeah, I'm not going to underscore him on anything. Could he get better? Certainly. You know, will, will he ever be better than Travis Kelsey and Kittle at their peaks? I don't know, but I mean, he's in the conversation. I just think it's a wonderful story. He's the Raiders' best player, and you know, they should be thrilled to have him. Final two questions. Um, it's let's put on your clairvoyant hat bill um it is september 28th is aaron Rodgers a las vegas raider yes or no 
Um, I don't know. You know, just the uh, yeah, just based on the odds. You know, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure. I mean, who doesn't want Aaron Rodgers, right? So if he puts you on their list, you listen to him, just like Russell Wilson. I know that the Raiders never really got too deep in the Wilson talks, like not 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 much at all. And you know, I think it may be really difficult for the Raiders to make that trade. I think it'd be really difficult for the Broncos to make this trade a little bit more because. They have a little bit more cap room right now. Raiders have good cap room for next year, so that's not a big problem. And the Raiders have a quarterback. You know, there's talk that, you know, I mean, for the Raiders to make that trade, they may need to involve a third team to put Derek Carr under the deal and then send that compensation um, to Green Bay. So just for hypotheticals, um, you know, say the Washington football team wants Derek Carr, you know, we'll give you a first. So that first is part of the package that goes to Green Bay, uh, but Green Bay say, yeah, but Green Bay maybe say, well, we'll, we'll take Derek Carr and then we'll trade uh, Jordan Love. I, I don't know. That may be a little harder to do because I don't know what you can get for Jordan Love. Um, so yeah, there's just a lot of ifs and whats. Um, but until this thing is, dies, until this thing, you know, he, he makes nice with the Packers, it's always a possibility. But I would say to answer your question. I would be surprised if it actually happens. Okay. Last thing, we'll wrap up here, Bill. The Las Vegas Raiders will be a playoff team in 2021, yes or no? Um, well, I'm going to probably lean no. Mm. Probably lean no. Um, it's a strong – It's a strong. No, I'm a, they'll, be in the, they'll be in the race. They're not going to – they'll be closer to the playoffs than they will be for the first pick overall. Um, but I think the schedule is a little tough. Um, I, you know, I, I want to see this offensive line because what happened when, when is Derek Carter the best when he gets really good protection? Um, so I want to see this offensive line mesh before making any of those predictions. And if, if they do, and they're ten and seven, if they make me fun of me for saying on May nineteenth that I don't think they're a playoff team, that's cool because um, I you know I think they will be in the mix. But I just think. The AFC is a little, a little tough. And, and but I'll say this: if, if John Gruden does not guide them to the playoffs this year, I think John Gruden deserves to be fired because he's been there for four years, and two of those four years are t- the playoffs are seven teams, and that's just long enough for any coach. He won't get fired, but um, you know, I, I think the only way he gets fired is the Raiders are like. Five and twelve, or four and thirteen, and they don't have any major injuries. Other than that, I think he stays. Interesting. Okay, Bill, what can we check out from you across the internet this week? Uh, just you know, just grinding every day at SB Nation, Silver and Black Pride, and I appreciate it. All right. Well, keep up the great work, sir. Thank you so much for the time. I greatly appreciate it. Uh, yep. Anytime. Thanks for having me. Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.